As you uh, know, we've been working our way through the book of 2 Corinthians, and we're so very close. In fact, last week I thought, we're going to finish 2 Corinthians next week, that's it, we're going to finish it, we're going to do 2 Corinthians 13, done. And then as I got studying the text and continued to study the text, I said, no, 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 I'm going to do verses 1 through 10. And we're going to, so there's two more weeks, this week and then next week we will finish 2 Corinthians. I promise you, Lord willing, we will finish 2 Corinthians. We've been here for quite some time. We've seen how God has used this book. He's, remember, He went to Corinth. He started the church in Corinth. We read about this in Acts. Acts 16, 17, and 18. He goes to Corinth. He uh, plants the church in Corinth. The, the people there, um, they begin to, they, they repent of their sin. They follow Jesus. And Paul actually stays in Corinth for about a year and a half, which is not necessarily common for Paul to stay in one place, to minister to one people for that extended period of time. But he does, and he develops this close relationship with them in Corinth. And the, the people in Corinth have much, uh, many blessings. They've been blessed mightily with many gifts, and yet they're continuing to struggle in their faith. And Paul is writing, correcting some false teaching, some errors in doctrine that he's had to address. And frankly, he's had to address some ways in which they have not honored the Lord with their lives. So he writes the letter of 1 Corinthians. There's an, another letter in there uh, in between 1 and 2 Corinthians that is not Scripture that we don't have. And then he writes 2 Corinthians, again, correcting some error and encouraging them to walk with the Lord. So that's all background to 2 Corinthians. Let's look actually at our text this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. If you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. 2 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 10. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I have previously said when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone, since you are seeking for the proof, for proof of the Christ who speaks in me, and who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. For indeed, he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed toward you. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? But I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. Now we pray to God that you do no wrong, not that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear unapproved. For we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. For we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. This we also pray for, that you be made complete for this reason, I am writing these things while absent, so that when present, I need not use severity in accordance with the authority with which the Lord gave me for building up and not tearing down. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the applying of His Word. Amen. You may be seated. So last week, I spoke... I began by talking about the sermon title, Godly Leadership. Last week was Godly Leadership. 
This week is Godly Leadership Part 2, and it's not, it, it has not escaped my notice of the, heavy, the heaviness of this message that is before me. I mentioned last week that it, if I was preaching a topical message, I probably would not choose a message on godly leadership, because I feel as though I fall so far short of being the godly leader that God has called me to be. And by God's grace... I continue to, to struggle to try to seek Him, to uh, seek to honor Him. And I, I, I actually think Paul would say the same thing. And as Paul has written this letter to 2 Corinthians, he's found himself in a position where he needs to defend his ministry, though he doesn't want to do so for his own sake, but for the sake of the Gospel. Paul knows that if his ministry is undermined, then the Gospel will be undermined. So he's placed in this position where he's forced to defend himself throughout this book of 2 Corinthians, where the very people whom he loved and brought to faith in the Lord and discipled and ministered to are beginning to question his motives. So it's, we approach this topic, I approach this topic with a heaviness, recognizing that it is only by God's grace that one such as myself can speak on godly leadership. Now last week we saw a list, not an exhaustive list, but a list nonetheless of characteristics possessed by godly leaders. And if you remember last week we saw that godly leadership is marked by humility, by love, by integrity, and an awe and a reverence, a fear for God, or fear of God. It's marked by humility, love, integrity, and fear. And today as we continue into chapter 13, we look at Paul's behavior toward those in Corinth, I want you to see five ways in which godly leaders act. So last week we saw uh, characteristics of godly leaders, if you will, while this week there's more of a focus on the behavior that flows out of those characteristics, or five things that godly leaders do. So let's jump right into our text. The first point in our sermon outline is, number one, godly leaders warn. Number one, warn. Look at verses 1-3 through with me. Paul says this, he says, This is the third time I am coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I have previously said, when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past, and to all the rest as well, that if I come, I will not spare anyone." He says, I said before, when I was there the second time, and I'm saying it again, even though I'm not there right now, I'm coming, I'm saying this before I come, I'm warning you, is what he's saying, if I come again, I will not spare anyone. Since, or because, you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me, and who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. He says, when I come, I'm not going to spare anyone. I'm telling you this in advance. I'm giving you this warning. And I'm doing so because you want to see that Christ is indeed speaking through me. You see, Paul had been accused of being weak. He had had been accused of being strong in his letters, but being unimpressive when he was with them personally. And they began to undermine Paul's ministry. They said, you know that Paul, he's not much. He writes a harsh letter, but he's not going to do anything when he shows up. And he says, I'm warning you, when I come, I'm not going to spare anyone. Instead, the power of Christ will be seen in me and will be mighty toward you. This is a clear warning by the Apostle Paul. 
He's sounding the alarm, so to speak. For he knows that doing anything less would be both unloving and disobedient to God. Paul's sounding the alarm and he's warning them because he knows that if he doesn't do so, he would be disobedient. Proverbs 27, verses 5-6 through says this, Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. And Ezekiel 33, verses 6-7 through says this, But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes a person from them, he is taken away in his iniquity. But his blood I will require from the watchman's hand. Now as for you, son of man, I have appointed you a watchman for the house of Israel, so you will hear a message from my my mouth and give them warning from me. You see, Paul had been appointed a watchman over the early church, and he took that responsibility seriously. That's why he wrote in Galatians 6, he wrote, Brethren, if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so you won't be tempted. He said, I understand the need to sound the alarm. And we all need to be sounding the alarm. We need to be warning. He said the same thing in Colossians 1, verses 28-29. through We proclaim Him. This is what Paul's ministry was. We proclaim Him, Jesus, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. He says, I present Christ and I admonish and I teach every man because I want every man to be perfect in Christ, to be growing in godliness. Therefore, I will sound the alarm. That's why in verse 29, he continues and says, For this purpose, I also also I labor, striving according to His power, which works mightily in me. So having seen that godly leaders warn Now let's turn to the second point in our sermon outline. Godly leaders confront. Number one, godly leaders warn. Number two, godly leaders confront. We see this clearly in the life of Paul and in the actions here. Look at verse 4 of our text. 2 Corinthians 13.4. It says, For indeed He was crucified because of weakness. Christ was crucified because of weakness. Yet He lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in Him. So he says in the same way, we look weak just as Christ looked weak when He was crucified, but it wasn't really weakness. It was great power with which the crucifixion happened because it brought about the resurrection and it showed His death for the sins of the saints. He says, for also we are weak in Him, yet we will live with Him because of the power of God directed toward you. When Paul says, We will live with Him. He's not talking about living with Christ in eternity. Though that certainly will be the case. He knows that He will live with Christ in all of eternity. The living with Him that he's talking about is living with Christ in His power when He returns to Corinth. We get this a little bit more clearly when we look at the ESV. 2 Corinthians 13.4 in the ESV says this, For He was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. And then he says, For we also are weak in Him, but in dealing with you, we will live with Him by the power of God. In other words, when I come to you, His power will be made known in me. 
Paul is not pulling any punches. He warned them, I'm coming again. And now he says, and when I come, it will be in power. Not my power. You can say his letters are weighty and strong, but his speech, it's contemptible and he's, he's unimp- unimpressive as a person. He says, but when I come, it's not me that you're going to have to see and deal with. It's Christ's power in me. He's saying that even though he's weak, Christ's power will, will be made known in him when he comes to visit. And that power will be directed toward the Corinthians. You see, Paul is not merely breathing idle threats. Instead, he's speaking specifically about the discipline process, the confrontation for sin that he intends to carry out. A process that must be carried out for their good if they continue in their sin. That's why Paul quotes Deuteronomy 19 in verse 1. And he says, every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. It's an Old Testament principle. That if a charge is brought against someone, that, that has to be confirmed by two or three witnesses so that somebody's not falsely accused. That if somebody came and said, you know, Dan did such and such, there has to be there's strength in numbers that any one person can accuse Dan of doing something. But when two or three come, then we say, okay, there's there's more credibility. But I think also, more than just the Old Testament principle, what Paul has in mind here is the words of Jesus in Matthew 18. Jesus quotes this very same passage in Matthew 18 when He says this. Jesus says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. Go and say, you know, the sin is something that needs to be addressed. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that, and then he quotes Deuteronomy, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven." Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where there are two or where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. This is one of the most misquoted passages in all of Scripture. We talk about well, when two or three are gathered, Jesus is in our midst. We use it for prayer meeting. We use it, you know, when we're sitting around a fellowship table with a couple of other believers. And while that's true, when we gather, Jesus is in our midst. That's really not what Jesus is talking about here. It's not what Matthew 18 is talking about at all. Instead, the principle is that if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he does not listen to you, then you take a couple of other brothers. And if he doesn't listen, tell it to the whole church, right? And let him be to you as someone who doesn't know Jesus, as a Gentile or a tax collector. Put them outside of the circle of the church and recognizing that we can't, we can't verify their testimony. That if somebody sins and refuses to repent, then I can't say in good conscience, yes, this person is a follower of Jesus. And that when the church, again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it will be done for, the, for them by the Father. When you gather together in my name, I am there in your midst, that when the church agrees that, the church is saying, we're not making this person not be saved. We're not saying this person isn't saved. Instead, we're saying that as we come together as a church, we can't verify that. 
And that there's power in that. And Paul is referring specifically to this process here in 2 Corinthians 13. He says, when I come, the testimony needs to be confirmed by two or three witnesses. What's going to happen is we're going to confront this sin. And I'm going to come with the power of Christ. Not in my strength, but the power of Christ. Church discipline, by the way, is never a happy topic. Nobody really likes talking much about church discipline. And yet, it's a necessary thing. It's a mark of the church. A church can't really be a church without church discipline. Because it's not a loving church if a church doesn't discipline its members. You wouldn't be a loving parent if you didn't discipline your children. And a church wouldn't be a loving church if it didn't discipline its members. Paul understands that when he comes, he will come in power. And it will be Christ's power that will be evident in him. Paul will come in the power of Christ bringing about discipline, but the discipline is not Paul's discipline. It's discipline from the Lord. For we know that the Lord chastens those whom He loves. Just real quickly, Hebrews 12. I'm going to read a couple of passages from there. Starting at verse um, 4, it says, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. So the author of Hebrews says, You're still not perfect. You're still sinning. Right? That could be true of every one of us. And then he says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom He loves, the Lord, those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. And He scourges every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom His Father does not discipline? He goes on and says, If you're not disciplined, then you're not a son. Parents discipline their children because they know that afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And that's what we want to see in each other and in the members of Christ's body. So Paul understands when he comes, he's coming in power. And he needs to war- and he has warned those in Corinth. And he has also confronted those in Corinth. So having seen that godly leaders warn and that godly leaders confront, now let's consider thirdly that godly leaders plead. Godly leaders plead. Look at verses 5 and 6. He writes this, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. This is a pastor's heart. Test yourselves. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test. Jesus is in you. Unless He's not. But I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. Interestingly enough here, they're undermining Paul's ministry. And Paul says, examine yourselves, look at your own heart, see if Jesus is in you. Oh, and by the way, if Jesus is in you, then quite clearly Jesus is in me because it was through my ministry that you came to know Christ. He says that if you examine yourselves and you're in the faith, then it's evident that my ministry is approved. And he doesn't say this in a prideful way. His point is that I trust that you will see this as you examine yourselves that we don't fail the test. Me and my ministry partners are indeed in Christ. We're examining ourselves as well. The word examine means to try to learn the genuineness of something by testing. Often through actual use. So it has this idea of being used and tested. Right? We all go to the store. We can all go to the store and we can look at things and be like, oh, you know, this looks like a decent bottle of water. The, the price is right. The packaging's nice. 
But until you actually get it home and you drink it, you test it, it's not until that point that you know whether it's actually worth your investment or not. You have to test it. And what he's saying is, here he's saying, test it, try it out through actual use. Let's see, is Christ in you? It's interesting to note here that Paul doesn't merely tell them to examine what they believe. He doesn't say, do you believe that you were a sinner? Do you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins? Do you believe in the resurrection? And we point to those things. Those are important things. Beliefs are important. However, it's necessary to do more than just believe the truth. For we know from Scripture, even demons believe and shudder. Instead, one must respond to the truth. One must not only believe the Gospel, one must trust in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And genuine trust in the Gospel of Jesus Christ produces fruit. That's what Scripture teaches. That if you genuinely trust in Jesus Christ, it produces change in your life. Scripture is full of promises. He who began a good work in you will carry it through to completion. Period, period, period. Jesus will finish the work He starts. And if there's no ongoing fruit, then you have to ask, was the work ever started in me? So Paul's not telling them to merely examine what they believe, but instead to examine themselves. He's saying they should self-examine their lives. It's an Old Testament principle too. Lamentations 3.40 Let us examine and probe our ways and let us return to the Lord. Self-examination is an important part of Scripture. That's why Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians. A real familiar passage. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 28-32 through We read, But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep, but if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. He says a man should examine himself, look at his life, look at his heart, and see if he is truly in Christ. Does his life match his verbal profession? See, Paul's point is that the Corinthians, their lives should be marked by a continual confession and forsaking of sin. And I don't know about you, but that seems like a constant in my life. Constant confession and constant forsaking of sin. It's not that I'm not battling because I've arrived. It's I'm, and it's not that I'm not battling. I'm battling because I haven't arrived. And I recognize I haven't arrived and I still have sin that I need to confront in my life. But the point is I'm facing the right direction by God's grace. And Paul's point is, examine yourselves. Make sure that the, the fruit of the Gospel is indeed in you. You should be examining yourselves to make sure that your lives are honoring the Lord. That's what Paul is saying. So he pleads with them, test yourselves. Examine yourselves. Is Christ's power evident in your lives? In other words, are you bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? So having seen that godly leaders warn, godly leaders confront, and godly leaders plead, now let's consider the fact that godly leaders pray. Number four, godly leaders pray. Look at verses 8-9 through with me. He writes this, Now we pray to God that you do no wrong. 
Not that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear unapproved. For we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. For we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. This we also pray for, that you be made complete. He brackets both sides of this section with, I'm praying for you. He says, even if I look weak, and remember, some are saying this, Paul, he's a weakling, he's not much. He's not going to do anything when he comes. So Paul says, even if I look weak when I come, I'd rather have you have already repented and walking with the Lord than I would for me to come with an opportunity to show how strong I am in Christ. He says, I don't want to come with a whip. I don't want to come and show you the power of God in me and through me and through my apostleship. I would much rather have some continue to say, yeah, look, see, he's, he's not that strong. And have them repent. He wants them to repent of their sin. Godly leaders pray because they understand John 14, verses 13 through 14. There we read, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. That's what Jesus said. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. He goes on, and then in First John 5.14, we read this. This is the confidence we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Godly leaders understand the importance of prayer. The early church understood this well. You read the book of Acts and you see prayer taking a prominent position again and again and again in the life of the church. In Acts 1, verses 13 and 14, what's the first thing that the apostles do? They're they're all with one mind continually devoting themselves to prayer. Acts 2.42 they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and, the, and prayer. That the whole church was continually devoting themselves to these things. The apostles' teaching, right? Fellowship, community group, living lives together, and to breaking bread, again, being together, and prayer. So Paul, instead of abandoning abandoning the Corinthians, even when they'd been hurtful to him, remember, he pastored this church. He poured into them. He loved them. He doesn't say, you know what? I'm done with you. Instead, he says, I'm praying for you. Because Paul understood the power of prayer. You know, the single point, godly leaders pray, that could be a sermon in and of itself. So I could talk all about how godly leaders pray for people. But, and I don't want to belabor the point, but I do want to look briefly at Mark chapter 1, because there we have an excellent example of the priority of prayer. And if you've never seen this, I want you to look in your Bibles at Mark chapter 1, verses 29 through 35. Starting at verse 29, it says this. And immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. So she's sick, she has a fever, they speak to Jesus, and he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. So Jesus heals her. Then in verse 32, when evening came, 
after the sun had set. So it's late evening. He heals this woman. The sun sets. After sunset, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city gathered at the door. It's late at night. It's after sunset. And the people start coming. And they keep coming. And keep coming. And keep coming. And the whole city's gathered at the door. It says, And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. What a fruitful ministry. You think, he, he has everyone, the whole city, they're all coming to Him. They want to be healed. They want to, they want to be with Him. They want to hear from Him. And they want to experience His healing power. So what does Jesus do? Verse 35, In the early morning, while it is still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Jesus leaves what appears to be the most fruitful ministry ever to go and pray. And He does so early in the morning while it's still dark. So the people don't even start coming until after sunset. He's obviously been healing for some time. And I don't know about you, but my attitude often is, well, I'll pray after I've slept eight hours. I'll pray when I have time to pray. Jesus' attitude is, I can do nothing better than to pray. He escapes the crowd because he knows the importance of spending time with his Heavenly Father in prayer. I wonder how many of us would escape to a secluded place to spend time with the Father when sleep-deprived, very little sleep, lots of ministry happening, lots of opportunity. And I wonder what would happen what others of us would say about the person who did escape to spend time with their Father, their Heavenly Father, in prayer. It's a good lesson on the priority of prayer. Jesus understood it, and Paul understood it. And he said, I'm praying for you to those in Corinth. So knowing that godly leaders, number one, warn, number two, confront, number three, plead, And number four, pray. Now let's look at our fifth and final point in our sermon outline. Godly leaders edify. Godly leaders edify or build others up. Look at verse 10 with me. He says this, For this reason I am writing these things while absent, so that when present I need not use severity. I don't want to use severity. I'm writing these things while absent in accordance with the authority with which the Lord gave me. I could come with the authority that He gave me and use severity. But I don't want to do that. Instead, I'm writing these things for building up and not for tearing down. Paul's point is that he doesn't want to harm them. He wants to see them strengthened in the Lord. Just like a parent disciplines a child because they want what's best for them, so Paul also wants what's best for the Corinthians. Namely, to be growing in Christ. And to see the importance that He is a member that all members play in that process of building one another up. Isn't that the purpose of the church? We read in Ephesians 4 that He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of the service to the building up of the body of Christ so that we may be edified and built up. 
that every one of us has been given gifts, and he gives various gifts and various positions within the church, and the purpose of all of that is to build up the church into the body of Christ so that we may become more like Christ. And he says this is going to happen, he says in Ephesians, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. We're to grow in all respects into him. Because we're all various parts, knit together, according to the proper working of each individual part, causing the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. See, godly leaders build up the church. They edify the church. They recognize the need to lift each other's up, lift others up and help each other grow. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26. Paul says, you have all these various gifts in the church, and some want to speak in tongues, and some want to sing, and some want to pray. And everybody has this different, these different attitudes. And he says, and what is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. You all have various gifts, but what's the outcome? What's the purpose? He says, let all things be done for edification. He understands the need to build up his brothers and sisters in the Lord. So by way of review, having seen that godly leaders warn, godly leaders confront, godly leaders plead, godly leaders pray, and godly leaders edify, they build others up. Here's the big question, the question of the day. So how do we, as Harmony Bible Church, both individually and corporately, specifically, apply all of this to our lives? How do we take this message about what godly leaders do, we know who godly leaders are and their characteristics. Now that we know what godly leaders do, how do we specifically apply this to our lives as a church body and as individuals? Well, number one, we need to be willing to warn. Not just the world, by the way. We do need to sound the alarm with the world, right? We do need to speak truth in our culture, But we need to sound the alarm with each other. Even more than the world. We need to be willing to sound the alarm. To be the watchman who says, warning, warning, danger is coming. Because if we don't, then the blood will be on us. We need to warn, care for each other enough to be able to do that. Number two, We need to confront. More than just saying, Jesus is coming back. Jesus is not a big fan of sin. This is not going to go over well. We need to be able to confront. And we need to be willing to be confronted. We all have sin in our lives that needs to be confronted. And we should be zealous in killing sin. Kill sin or sin will be killing you, right? That we know the need to confront not just the world again, but especially those in the church. Confront believers. We know from Scripture, what have we to do with judging those outside? But instead, we are called to judge those inside. And we use passages like, uh, we, we use the... Uh, the uh, parable of a, of a man walking around with a log in his eye, right? And he's trying to take the splinter out of his brother's eye. And we say, well, you know, who am I to take, who am I to take the splinter out of my brother's eye, the speck out of my brother's eye, because I have a log in my own eye. 
And instead, really what, what Jesus is teaching in that passage is He says, take the log out of your own eye so that you can take the speck out of your brother's eye. Your brother has a speck. He needs it out. So get the log out of your eye so that you can do that. Don't just walk around going, well, I've got a log. We've all got logs. Got this giant log sticking out of my eye. Don't let me hit you, you know, with my log as I'm walking around. The point is, get it out so that you can help your brother. We need to be willing to confront sin, and we need to be willing to let sin be confronted in our own lives. Oh, pray for God's grace in that. Right? Because my pride, my pride bubbles up in me. And I'm sure it bubbles up in you whenever somebody says, I see this thing in you. Thirdly, we need to plead. We need to plead not just with the world, but also with each other. I think these principles sometimes are easy to apply to the world outside. Oh, I'm going to warn them. I'm going to confront their sin. You see those homosexuals on TV and the things they're doing? And meanwhile, our marriages in the church are a train wreck. We need to warn. We need to confront those inside the church. And we need to plead with those inside the church to live lives of obedience. We need to plead with with each other. And we need to examine ourselves. Does my life reflect the genuineness of the Gospel? Am I living a life worthy of the Gospel of Christ? Paul says that again and again. I pray that you would live lives worthy of the Gospel. He says it in Colossians. He says it in Ephesians. He says it in Philippians. He writes to the churches and says, live lives worthy of the Gospel. I plead with you. Fourthly, we need to pray. We need to pray for each other, not just for healing. Yeah, you know what? I want healing too. We all want healing. We all want our bodies to function the way they should, the way they did before the fall. Probably not going to happen, right? We still live in a fallen world. So when we pray for each other, let's also pray that we would be walking with Jesus, that we would be confronting sin, that we would be examining ourselves, that we would be growing in maturity. Paul says in verse 7, now we pray to God that you would do no wrong. And then he says in verse 9, he says, for we also rejoice that we ourselves are weak, that you are strong. This we also pray for that you would be made complete. I'm praying that you would be growing in maturity. Pray for one another, folks. God is glorified in that. And lives are changed when you pray. Lord, I pray that Matt would grow in Your likeness. I pray that he would become more a more faithful follower of You day by day. God, I pray that for Kim. God, I pray that for Daniel. God, I pray that for Dale and Lucy. So we pray for each other. And then lastly, we edify one another. We build each other up. We point each other to Jesus Christ. He says, that's the reason I'm writing these things. Verse 10. So that when absent, I don't want to use severity. Instead, God gave me this authority for building up and not tearing down. Spend too much time tearing each other down and not enough time building each other up. And I don't just mean encouragement. I do mean encouragement. But I don't mean just encouragement. Right? We're called to admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak, and be patient with everyone. So the question we have to ask is, where is my brother in this moment? Does he need to be admonished? Is he being unruly? Do I need to encourage him? Is he just faint-hearted? Right? Should I be helping him? Oh, how, do I, how do I do this? And we do all that with patience. 
And the only way we'll do this, folks, is if we are connected with each other. If we know enough about each other that we can do these things, that we can truly build each other up. It's not going to happen on Sunday morning, I'll tell you right now. There's little bits of this that can happen on Sunday morning. But we need to be in each other's lives. So as a church and as individuals, we need to warn, confront, plead, pray, and edify each other. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for Paul's example of godly leadership. God, I know that there are some sitting here who probably do not see themselves as leaders. And yet we know, God, from Your Word that we all have equal access to Your throne. God, that there is only one High Priest, Your Son, Jesus Christ. And it is through Him that we come. And God, that we have all been given the ability and the necessity to lead. God, that every one of us has someone who will look up to us in some way, shape, or form. God, that every one of us has been given gifts by which we minister to and serve the church. And God, that we are all called to love Your body and to lead others in obedience to You. And God, I pray that we would live out these leadership actions well. God, I just pray and ask that You'd encourage us in them. God, that as we think about what it means to be a faithful leader, God, that we would warn, confront, plead, pray, and edify each other. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.